Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's give careful attention now to God's Word beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. Let's turn to... The Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11, the first 16 verses. Let's again hear God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks." By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the second passage that we read. Hebrews chapter 11. And even as we're expounding Paul's epistle to the Romans and thinking of that statement at the end of chapter 5, verse 2, that we as believers rejoice in the hope of glory, even so this morning uh, we consider that glorious residence or dwelling place that God has set before His people. We've considered the glorious appearing of Christ with His saints. We've considered the glorious resurrection body of believers at the last day and for all eternity. And now we consider what is in in many respects uh, an essential theme of that hope that is set before us in Hebrews 11 the substance of the faith of the Old Testament believers, the glorious residence or dwelling place of God's people, their heavenly home. And you can turn your attention back to Hebrews 11 and verse 13, speaking of the Old Testament believing patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And so the patriarchs recognize that they're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. A stranger who is someone that does, is someone who doesn't belong. And a pilgrim is someone who's just passing through. And so they're saying... We don't belong to this present evil age. This world, this earth is not our home. 
We're just passing through. We're on our way, as it were, to our homeland. Literally in the Greek, our fatherland. The imagery here, of course, is connected with the typology, the imagery of the Old Testament exodus where God's people come into the land of Canaan. And so the patriarchs, with eyes of faith, are beholding the substance of things hoped for, even a heavenly Canaan and a celestial city. The land of their father. Their, their patrimony. The land of their inheritance as children of God. Verse 16, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You'll notice in the Epistle to the Hebrews this constant recurring language of that which is better. A better covenant. Better promises. A better mediator. So on and so forth. The blood of Christ which speaks a better word than that of Abel. Here, we're told that the patriarchs desire a promised land that is better than the land of Canaan. The physical real estate of the promised land in the Middle East. They desire that which is better. Indeed, that which is heavenly. Not that which is earthly, but that which is the heavenly Mount Zion. The city that God has prepared for them. And because they have this heavenward affection, this heavenly focus, this heavenly faith, this heavenly hope, this heavenly love within their souls, therefore God sees that in them. Of course, He's produced it, but He sees that resemblance. For God is the God of heaven, and God has reflected His glory most clearly in heaven, and so when His people are most filled with heaven, it attracts His eye, and He's not ashamed to be called their God, for He has indeed prepared a city for them. You see, it tells us that this notion of our heavenly residence, our heavenly inheritance is so crucial that it's the thing that stirs us up to the sort of affection and love and piety that causes God uh, to own us with greater and greater manifestations of His goodness, His power, and His love. He's not ashamed to be called our God when we're filled with this anticipation, this desire for a better, that is, a heavenly fatherland. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now that's important for the believing Jews who had come out of Old Covenant religion, now in the Christian church. Paul's writing to them here in this epistle, and they're tempted to go back, tempted to abandon the faith, tempted to go back to the earthly city of Jerusalem with its earthly temple and its earthly priesthood and all of the, the earthly altar and so on and so forth. But he says, here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Hope of a glorious residence. There's no doubt that when believers, Paul says, are rejoicing in the hope of glory, that front and center at the heart of that rejoicing in the hope of glory is rejoicing in this glorious residence. As Psalm 16 said, it is true 
that Jehovah Himself is our inheritance. But then it goes on to say that the lines have been drawn for us in pleasant places and we've been given this lovely and pleasant inherited land in which to enjoy Jehovah as our chief reward. And so, we look forward to it. We rejoice in hope of this glorious residence. Now, our doctrine this morning, drawn from our text, is very simple. Heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Uh, We've seen that quite clearly, that the patriarchs, looking ahead to the same heavenly inheritance that we're looking for as believers uh, with that same gospel faith. They're looking forward, desiring a better, that is, a heavenly country as their homeland. Heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Now let's seek to unpack the meaning of this doctrine. When we say heaven, we're referring to that part of God's creation that is referenced in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That includes what we call the highest heaven, the heaven of heavens, the third heaven, heaven. The place where God most clearly reveals His glory. Uh, And this is a place that has been created. Some people have this idea that God lives in heaven, that He's eternally lived there, and that heaven itself is eternal. But you see, if heaven possesses the divine attribute of eternity, then heaven is part of God. Heaven is God. And so you have some serious theological problems with that. But the the biggest problem is it's unbiblical to say that heaven is uncreated. Heaven is created. God created the heavens. In other words, the sky, which is the first heaven where the birds of the heaven fly. And then outer space, the rest of the universe, which is where... Uh, The stars of heaven reside. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is where the angels of heaven live. Even the heaven that we're speaking of here. This This was created by God. The third heaven. The highest heaven. The heaven of heavens. And this is made clear as well in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You alone are Jehovah. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, that's the angels, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So there are these main constituent elements of God's creation. There is heaven and earth. And the first two heavens are kind of associated with the earth, the sky and outer space. And, and of course, the sea comes in as well as, as, uh, as sort of a subset of the earth. But heaven and earth are the two constituent elements of God's creation. Earth being the physical world that we see around us, and heaven being that celestial dimension where God reveals His glory and where the souls of believers exist at present. You see this in Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. That's a reference to the hosts that inhabit each of the three heavens, including the angels of heaven. So we know the angels were created during that first creation week. 
because it says that the hosts of heaven, the angel armies of heaven, were created at that time. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 speaks of the third heaven, so you can't say, well, that's just some sort of ancient cosmology. Uh, No, the Bible uses that language. Paul says he was lifted up into the third heaven and received revelation from Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4 calls that third heaven paradise. We'll get to that later on. Our larger catechism, question 53, when it deals with Christ's ascension, says that He ascended into the highest heavens, there to prepare a place for us in glory. The highest heavens, the third heaven, the heaven of heavens. You recall Solomon when he dedicated the temple in prayer, said that the heaven of heavens cannot even contain God's glorious presence. So God is not residing in heaven in the sense that He's contained there. Rather, God is omnipresent, but heaven is that part of His creation that He reveals Himself most powerfully and most clearly to His creatures. Isaiah 66, verse 1, a verse that we'll be relying heavily upon this morning with God's help. There's so much of the doctrine of heaven in this particular verse. Isaiah 66, 1, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is My throne, and the earth is is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. So on and so forth. Okay, He's saying heaven is my throne. It's the most exalted part of my creation. It's the best part. It's the highest part. It's the place where I set my throne and I reveal my majesty. The earth is my footstool. It's the lower part. It's the humbler part. It's the less glorious part, even if you compare a throne to a footstool, the comparison, the contrast is obvious. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. He goes on to speak of his house that they would build on earth, the temple. He says, essentially, it's nothing compared to my temple in heaven and the place of my rest on earth, whether it be the land of Canaan or the Sabbath day, the earthly rest of the people of God. He says, it's nothing compared to heaven as my place of rest. Heaven. And we say heaven is the believer's eternal residence. In other words, we're not just speaking of what we call the intermediate state, that period of time after the death of a believer when his body united to Christ is put in the grave and his or her soul ascends to heaven with Christ and awaits the return of Christ when He raises all men from the dead and gives believers their glorious bodies. Uh, We're not talking about that intermediate state where the souls of believers are in heaven. Now, it is true that they are consciously in heaven around the throne. You see that in Hebrews chapter 12 which speaks to us of the heavenly city of Jerusalem where there is God, the judge of all the earth, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and the multitude of angels, and so on and so forth. But we're not merely saying that heaven is the believer's temporary residence until Christ returns, but we're saying heaven is the believer's eternal, unending, everlasting residence in what's often referred to as the eternal or everlasting state of God's people 
again for all eternity. Also, we're saying that heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Now, uh, if someone were to, someone in your extended family were to die and leave you a thousand acres of land out west, okay, uh, a great estate, a great inheritance. In fact, there were multiple tracts of land, let's say throughout the state of Wyoming, and you inherited all that land. And they said, to inherit this, you have to move out here. And your first question, when you looked at the map and you saw all these large tracts of land that would become your inheritance, you might ask, yes, but where is the residence? Where am I going to live? I I have this inheritance that is all over the place, but where is my residence going to be? You see, residence is a subset of inheritance. Someone can own all kinds of things, all kind, a, a great and manifold inheritance of land, but where do they dwell? You see this illustrated in Mephibosheth, who was one of the sons of King Saul's son, Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth was uh, disabled and David showed kindness to him. And Mephibosheth had a great land of his inheritance in the tribe of Benjamin, but he dwelt at the king's table, you see. So oftentimes when people try to answer this question of uh, the believer's eternal residence, they fall short of actually answering the question. They find verses that speak of the, the believer's inheritance. The meek shall inherit the earth. Well, yes, but the question is not the inheritance. There's no question that believers will inhabit or will inherit, rather, all of God's creation, heaven and earth. Believers will inherit all heaven and earth. The question is not that. The question is, of course, they're going to inherit the earth along with all the creation. But which part of the creation will be the primary residence of believers for all eternity? That's the real question. And I think we need to, we need to sharpen our pencils when we answer this question. Mephibosheth owns all this land, but he dwells in the king's palace at the king's table near the throne. We think of Christ. He presently has inherited all nations. Christ is the heir of the earth. doesn't reside on the earth. He resides in heaven. The angels are the angels of heaven, though they spend quite a bit of their time on the earth. In fact, we're told that the angels are constantly ascending and descending. Ascending and descending which tells you that for many of them, their default position is on the earth, and yet they're the angels of heaven. That's their primary residence and their primary dwelling place. So it's very important to understand the nature of the question. Jesus uh, tells us in John 14, it's in our call to worship. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms for fellowship and interaction. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So he's going, and we know he's going to heaven. He's ascending to heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So again, we need to look for the passages, not that speak of inheritance per se, 
But the passages that speak of the precise residence of God's people, this would be one of them, speaking of Christ preparing that residence for us in heaven. Another one that we've looked at in recent weeks, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which speaks of believers dwelling in the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. The house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And of course, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which speaks of believers as strangers and pilgrims on the earth seeking a heavenly fatherland. This is very important. Also, when we say heaven is the believer's eternal residence, we're speaking very clearly of believers. We're limiting this entire discussion, limiting all the rejoicing and all the hope only and exclusively to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Christ, the lot has not fallen to you in pleasant places. You do not have a pleasant land of your inheritance. You will inherit the house prepared for the devil and his angels, not the house made without hands eternal in the heavens. You will not be welcomed into eternal joy and blessedness in heaven. You have no continuing city here, nor in heaven. Your continuing city is beneath in the place prepared for the devil and his angels, the place of torment. Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see nor enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very important as we discuss these things that we're constantly examining ourselves. But understand this, one of the best ways to examine yourself as to whether you're headed for heaven is whether you desire to go to heaven. And I don't mean as an alternative to burning in hell. That's, that's no reflection upon your spiritual condition. Just to say, well, I'd rather be in heaven. Anything's better than hell. But the fact is, if you could stay on this earth and have all of its enjoyments, all of its wealth, all of its comfort and ease, and live forever on the earth, would you desire that? And would you rather have that to be able to live as you please with God out of the picture, but with all of your sensual appetites satisfied and all the kinds of bountiful delights you can imagine? Would you choose that as your lot, as your inheritance, or do you desire a better country? Do you desire a better city whose builder and maker is God? Do you desire God as your portion and your inheritance? Do you desire Emmanuel's land more so than this world? If so, you're a believer. Because no true believer would fail to desire that and, and no unconverted person would desire, truly desire to go to heaven as an alternative to the things that I just mentioned. Oftentimes we can be very simplistic in our evangelism. We say, if you died, would you go to heaven? When the more fundamental question is, do you know what heaven is and do you even want to be there? Uh, I sometimes wonder if, if unbelieving people, if they could truly see the holiness and the God-centeredness of heaven, if they truly would choose it as an alternative to hell, if their desire to protect themselves from physical torment would really actually trump their hatred of God 
and of His holiness. I'm not sure, but that's not a scenario that's ever going to unfold. The fact is, if you truly have a longing for this better country, that's a sign God's, God's not ashamed to be called your God. And so these promises are for you. Now we need, of course, to prove our assertion that heaven is the believer's eternal residence. Uh, I'm not unmindful that this is a minority view in our day. Uh, it's not a minority view in the history of the church by any stretch and certainly not in the Reformed tradition but it is a minority view today. Most people think, most Reformed Christians probably think or have been taught that we will be on the earth. That is not the historic Reformed position. As you heard, larger Catechism 53 says Christ is preparing a place for us in the highest heavens. But the fact is, we need to prove it, as with anything. We need to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. I mean, if we're not going to be in heaven, if we're going to be on the earth, the Bible's going to tell us that one way or the other. So we need to search the Scriptures. Let's dive in first. We see that heaven is the believer's eternal residence because heaven is the place of God's throne. We're told that Revelation 22, verse 1, that all the delights of this world to come for the believer flow out of God's throne. And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So heaven is the place of God's throne. The place where we'll be dwelling eternally, in other words, is the place of God's throne. And we know that heaven is God's throne. We saw Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. The rivers of the water of life are not flowing out of the footstool. They're flowing out of the throne. They're in heaven. That's where God's throne is. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. So again, in terms of the constituent parts of creation, and we know there's going to be a new creation, the, the, the earth, the first heaven, the second heaven are going to be renewed at the last day. Christ is renewing and preparing a place for us in the third heaven, and that will be finished as well at the last day when He returns. And the fact of the matter is that we will be in the, the presence of His throne. We'll be in that part of His creation that is the highest and the most glorious. In heaven, He's established His throne, and out of that throne flows the rivers of the water of life. Of course, figurative, but you get the point. Secondly, heaven is the place of God's rest. Heaven is God's resting place. Uh, once again, Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Now, understand, heaven as God's resting place is a major theme throughout redemptive history. You see it in Genesis 2, verse 1, when God rests on the Sabbath day. When He rests on the Sabbath day, He's enjoying a heavenly rest. God is the God of heaven. He manifests that rest through His presence in heaven heaven. That's the picture. Psalm 95, 11, when God tells His unbelieving people, you're not going to get to heaven 
He says, you shall not enter my rest. You shall never enter my rest. Not the earthly Canaan that Joshua conquered for the people of Israel. You have that earthly rest. You have the Sabbath rest of the Sabbath day, as Hebrews 4 says. But there is yet a Sabbath rest of the people of God. It remains for the people of God. Richard Baxter wrote about this, an entire volume, a huge volume. The saints' everlasting rest. But you see, the saints' everlasting rest is connected with God's resting place. Again, heaven is my throne. And where is the place of my rest? It's a heavenly rest. It's a heavenly place of rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Speaking of Christ, uh, verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. This is heaven. For he who has entered his rest, that's Christ, that's Christ, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So in the same way the old covenant Sabbath commemorated God ceasing from his work of creation, having finished it, resting the seventh day, the New Covenant Sabbath commemorates Christ having conquered death and entering into His rest through the resurrection from the dead and eventually His ascension into heaven. There is a heavenly rest for the people of God. Heaven is that resting place. That's why in Revelation 14, 13, we're told, blessed are those who die in the Lord their works shall follow them and they shall enter into their rest. Where are those souls going to enter into that place of rest? They're going to the heavenly Jerusalem, the spirits of just men made perfect, Hebrews chapter 12. So, uh, heaven is the resting place of God's people. And heaven is also God's house. Remember Isaiah 66? Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Uh, as, as the book of Revelation speaks, there is a temple in heaven. Heaven is a temple. It's a place where God manifests His glory and receives worship from His saints made perfect in holiness. And so, heaven is God's house. When the psalmist in Psalm 23 verse 6 says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Jehovah forever. He's referring to God's house in heaven. His holy temple or tabernacle in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.1, I've already quoted it, that will be dwelling in the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a house. And Hebrews mentions this multiple times. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Again, heaven is my throne and Christ is on it, enthroned in the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. In other words, the house made without human hands, eternal in the heavens, the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We're told it's the th it's, it's there in the majesty in heaven. Also, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come 
with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. In other words, remember we said there are two constituent parts of creation, heaven and earth, so this is in the other part of that creation. We're told, verse 12, He entered the most holy place once for all. So, He he entered heaven, which is the most holy place. In other words, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the temple in heaven. Verse 23 of that chapter, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, the earthly temple, earthly tabernacle, earthly sanctuary is a copy, a type, and a shadow of heaven itself, where Christ has now entered, the true house of God, made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And we're told that's our building from God, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus tells us that uh, when He returns and takes us to our eternal habitation, that it will be in my Father's house. The consistent usage here, as you see, is of heaven. And it's the place that He goes to to prepare the place that He's going to eventually take us, and we will inhabit with Him side by side in heavenly places. Uh, You can also see in um, Revelation uh, 21, verse 3 and verse 22, that our eternal habitation is God's tabernacle with man. There's no need for a temple because the Lord is in it. Fourthly, heaven is God's city, the city whose builder and maker is God Himself. Contrasted with any continuing city on the earth, this is the capital city of our heavenly homeland. Hebrews 11.10, Abraham waited for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, This is God's city. You can see it in chapter 12, verse 22 of Hebrews. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And he goes on to describe what's taking place in the third heaven as we speak. Philippians 3.20 famously says that we are citizens... We tend to think of citizenship in terms of our state or our nation, but historically it was often, especially in the Roman Empire, it was associated with the city that you lived in. And so our citizen, citizen, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our homeland. That's our fatherland. The whole family in heaven and earth will one day inhabit heaven itself. Also, heaven is paradise. And consistently, after the Garden of Eden is destroyed, perhaps in the flood, uh, paradise is consistently referred to as existing in heaven. Jesus on the cross, what does he say to the dying thief? Surely today you will be with me in paradise. And in that sense, he means heaven. 2 Corinthians 12.4, Paul says he went to the third heaven and he calls it paradise. 1 Corinthians 15, we saw that just as Adam was placed in an earthly garden, so Christ, the man from heaven, gives us heavenly bodies and leads us to that heavenly 
inheritance, as a, as a greater and better fulfillment as compared with the paradise where Adam lived. Uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 5, again, flowing out of God's heavenly throne, you see a description there meant to give us a sense of paradise with the tree of life and the, the water of life and so forth. That's heaven. Paradise is in heaven. Sixthly, the believer's reward, riches, and inheritance are consistently attributed in the New Testament to heaven itself. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, he does make reference to the fact that the meek shall inherit the earth. He also says the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? So you have to be, need to be careful that we're not being selective here. It's heaven and earth. But notice verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So when he wants to refer to the earth, verse 5, he refers to the earth. But when he wants to refer to the place where the believer is going to chiefly enjoy his reward and his inheritance, he says that great is your reward in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Couldn't be more clear. Colossians 1.5 as well speaks of our hope of heaven. Colossians 1.5 Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, that's the idea of something that's stored up and accumulated that's presently being held for you. The hope laid up for you in heaven. And then if you go on to Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So notice the hope laid up for heaven is connected with the inheritance of heaven and, and, and nothing could be more clear. 1 Peter 1.4, notice what uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So all throughout the Scriptures, we're told that our inheritance, our riches, our reward is in heaven and that it's laid up for us in heaven. In other words, it's being kept in heaven till we get there. Not that it's going to come down from heaven. We'll see something of that in a moment. Also, heaven is the place of ascension. And this is crucial in terms of the reality of redemption in Christ. Everything Jesus did for us, He did in such a way as to include us in it. So Jesus died. And Jesus died so that we would be dead to sin. We died with Him. And we were buried with Him. And the believer also dies and is buried physically. So, in some sense, we follow the pattern of Christ both physically and spiritually in His death and in His burial. We can sing Psalm 16 that He will not ultimately leave us in the grave. We die, we're buried physically. We die and we're buried spiritually through death to sin. Buried with Him in baptism. 
we're raised up with Christ physically at the last day, spiritually at our regeneration, so we experience physically and spiritually the power of His resurrection. But the same must be true of His ascension. And that's, again, the emphasis of Larger Catechism 53. If you read between the lines, what it's actually saying is that He was raised up, He he ascended into the highest heavens for us, and that's why He's preparing a place for us there. So that not only are we seated with Christ in heavenly places by faith spiritually now, but that we will meet Him in the air and ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 So we have a physical ascension in through the gates of that heavenly kingdom to look forward to. Even as we will be raised physically, we will ascend with Christ. He'll return and then we'll meet Him in the air. And we will ever be with the Lord in the house made without hands eternal in the heavens. Now we need to defend this against some, uh, some objections. First, we've already dealt with this, but the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. But again, keep in mind that uh, the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, great is your reward in heaven. So it's both and. Mephibosheth had a land of his inheritance, but he dwelled at the king's table. Christ has inherited the nations, but he dwells at the throne in heaven. You can find various other passages. Psalm 37 talks about believers inheriting the land or the earth. Uh, But this imagery is most likely speaking of Canaan as a foretaste of Emmanuel's land to come, the heavenly fatherland. Secondly, there are those who say, well, creation was freed from bondage to sin, Romans 8, 20 and 21, 2 Peter 3, 13, creation was freed from bondage, therefore we'll be in creation, therefore we'll be on the earth. And you hear this often. We'll be in the new heavens and the new earth, which for that person means the new earth. Well, what about the new heavens? You see, creation is twofold. And there's nothing in the Bible that clearly, demonstratively, with enough biblical warrant to make such a bold claim, indicates a metaphysical merging of these two constituent parts of heaven and earth. Uh, everywhere throughout the New Testament from beginning to end, it's always heaven and earth. Even the new heavens and the new earth are spoken of in a twofold manner. And so, yes, we will be in God's creation and there will be no unrighteousness in it. Unrighteousness alone will dwell in it, but heaven's part of the creation and Jesus has gone to that part of the creation to prepare a place for us. Thirdly, What about Isaiah's new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65? Well, I'm not going to go to that passage, but if if that passage is on your mind, I would encourage you to read through that prophecy. And yes, of course, it is happening on the earth. And yes, it is spoken of as the new heavens and the new earth. However, the fact of the matter is that in that passage alone, you have references to death, toil, childbirth, and infants. So that is not a description of the world to come because in the world to come there will be no death, toil, childbirth, or infants. So that's not a strong argument because of those factors 
Rather, we're to understand this as a first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, the first fruits of what we'll see after Christ returns. He's established it in principle. He's established the kingdom of heaven now, and that describes the New Testament period, which does take place in an age of death, toil, childbirth, and infants. But what about the apostles' new heavens and new earth? What about when Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, tells us of the new heavens and the new earth? Verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved. Of course, that's referring to the sky and the outer space, not the third heaven. Uh, that will be renewed by Christ as He's preparing it as we speak. It says, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, it will be free from sin and free from the curse. Now, um, what about that? What about uh, the other reference, John the Apostle, Revelation 21 verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. And people debate you know, what the sea refers to. We could take that up another time. Um, but what do we make of when Peter and John speak of this new heaven and new earth? Well, we've already said that you can take this in an inclusive way, inclusive of the third heaven, that the new heavens or heaven includes all three heavens. The first two are purged by fire. The third is prepared by Christ. All three are made new in that sense. And the earth is purged by fire as well. And so all, all of the constituent parts are included here. And, and so all things are made new, but then it still doesn't reverse the fact that the part of that creation that we'll dwell in is the third heaven. You could also take new heavens and the new earth as exclusive of the third heaven. You could say, well, it's just the sky and outer space and the earth, and it's not including heaven, the heaven of heavens, the third heaven. You could take that approach, but then you could also, you could also reconcile that with the idea that heaven is our, uh, is our eternal residence in this sense. And this is how Edwards understood it. Uh, you look at the reference to New Jerusalem. What is New Jerusalem? Does the word new mean that it's the city of Jerusalem, it's just made perfect? So we're going to dwell in the literal geographic city of Jerusalem, it'll just be free from sin. No, we all understand when we say New Jerusalem, which is in the next verse, Revelation 21.2, when we see reference to the new Jerusalem, we all understand this is that which takes the place of the old Jerusalem, not that which is the old Jerusalem just kind of refurbished and renewed, right? So it's inconsistent then to demand that new heavens and new earth, according to Edwards, it's inconsistent to demand that this has to refer to a renewed earth and sky and outer space and that it couldn't just as easily be interpreted with just as much plausibility as that which takes the place of the old heaven and earth. In, others, in other words, he would say uh, the earth 
and the sky and the outer space was the place of man's dwelling from Genesis 1-1 on, but now that's been replaced. So the new dwelling, the new heaven and earth, the new place of man's habitation that replaces the old is heaven itself. Either way, I'm not advocating either one, but what I'm saying is it's reconcilable. So the idea that John presents there in no way refutes the mountain of evidence we've considered thus far. Fifthly, people say, well, what about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? Uh, Revelation 21, verse 2. This is by far the most common uh, way of heading in a different direction on this question. In fact, one of my favorite preachers recently, uh, I was listening to a sermon. Uh, In fact, it was actually this morning. It was random. I was just listening to a sermon. But one of my favorite preachers, and he made reference to this, and, and he tried to argue that Uh, that this is a sort of metaphysical synthesis of heaven and earth at the last day, that at the last day, the heavenly city will merge with the earth. And and so, again, we have to be respectful of those who have a different view. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's a sound exposition of this verse for several reasons. First, the city in this case is not heaven itself. The city here is the bride, the church. Notice verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So you've got the entire, the ensuing chapter, chapter 21, where the New Jerusalem is laid out with 12 foundations of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 gates for the 12 names of the apostles, It's referring to the church, the 144,000, the fullness of God's elect. This is a reference to God's church, and that's why she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city in Scripture sometimes means the people, sometimes means their environment, their habitation, but in this case, it's clearly referring to the people. The city that comes down is the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. Now, some commentators, such as James Durham, have have also noted that the language of coming down here could in fact be visional language. In other words, John is on the Isle of Patmos, God reveals the heavenly city to him, and he sees it coming out of heaven because that's how God reveals it to him. It's not as though, according to Durham, it's not as though... John is watching a future event that's going to happen, but rather he's just watching the revelation of the city and it happens to come out of heaven from God so that he can see it in the vision. In the same way, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. It's not saying there's going to be a loud voice that that's proclaimed at the last day. It's actually God saying something to John himself and revealing something from heaven to John himself. Uh, So says James Durham and various other commentators. So that could be a factor. Also, notice that even in this text, heaven and earth are not merged, but they're still distinct. The city comes down out of heaven. Now, the city can't be heaven and come out of heaven at the same time because it would have to take heaven with it if it is heaven. So logically, just looking at the language here, the city can't come down out of heaven 
and be heaven at the same time. Clearly, the city comes down because it's the people, and heaven's still there. So heaven and earth are still distinct. It's not a metaphysical synthesis, uh, whatever that may entail, but that's the idea um, that is proposed. Also, the loud voice comes from heaven. It's not coming from the city. It's coming from heaven out of which the city came. So again, heaven is still distinct from the city and still distinct from the earth. So it's, it's not uh, an accurate interpretation. The other thing to keep in mind is that according to John, if we regard the city coming out of heaven as more than just visional language, then we have to account for the fact that according to John, it's already coming out of heaven. Uh, Revelation 3.12 says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which, and this is present tense, so it's continuous, present action, which comes down, or literally, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. It's not saying it is coming down in the same way we might say dad is going to mow the lawn at some point in the future, okay? Is is present. It's saying that the new Jerusalem is presently coming down out of heaven from God. Now that's a description of this age in the new covenant where God is establishing his kingdom on the earth through the great commission. So even if we take that as more than visional language, uh, it's more likely that John is describing something about the church here that is not referring to a metaphysical synthesis, because that's not happening right now. I can tell you that. Heaven and earth are not merged at the moment. There's not a present tense ongoing merging of heaven and earth that's happening at a metaphysical level at this time. That's actually not happening. But what John is doing in Revelation 21 uh, verse 2 is what he's saying is that this is the new Jerusalem that Uh, that is the one that is coming down out of heaven. In other words, he speaks to us. He's saying, which new Jerusalem am I envisioning here? I'm envisioning the one that is coming down out of heaven. So he's actually referring to his audience, he's referring his audience to the ongoing coming down out of heaven that's currently taking place in the new covenant age. And that participle is, is present as well in that verse. So uh, the, the other thing I'll simply say, and we'll, we'll wrap up here in a moment, but the, the other thing I'll simply say is if we're going to, to suppose a metaphysical merging of heaven and earth, we're going to need more than Revelation 21 verse 2. We cannot make the hinge of our entire eschatology to turn on such a highly disputed, difficult to understand visional passage. We've seen the clear biblical testimony, even from the passage itself, but throughout the scriptures, that our inheritance is in heaven, the throne is in heaven, our place of rest is in heaven, God's house is eternal in the heavens, His city is in heaven, paradise is in heaven, we will ascend with Christ and meet Him in the air and ascend into heaven. And the the testimony of that mountain of evidence cannot be undone by a visional statement that could be interpreted in two or three different plausible ways. So it's not the sort of objection that we take lightly, but it's certainly not conclusive either. Now, 
in saying this, let me, let me close by addressing something practical, and, and we'll devote our next sermon to a full-fledged practical application of these things. But you say, if, if we spend eternity in the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. If we spend eternity outside of this dimension that we're currently in, in that other part of the creation which we've never seen, heard, or experienced, uh, is that not too abstract? Does that not set forth a sort of airy fairy sitting on a cloud playing a harp sort of eternity that contradicts so much of what we find in the scriptures and simply the common sense piety of the people of God? And my friends, we're not going to inhabit heaven in some kind of airy fairy harp concert uh, recital. That's not what heaven is. We have to understand that that false view of heaven has no origin in the scriptures. Heaven is everything the Bible proclaims it to be, and the fact that it's in the highest heavens does not change the fact that the same creator that made Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon and uh, you know, Mount Everest and all the beautiful things that we love to see in this present world, all the created things that cause us to see the power, the glory, the majesty of God, the same one who is preparing a place for us is the one who did all that. And so if you were to look at various paintings from the same artist, you would see similarities. Can we not assume that what we see in terms of the beauty of this land of habitation in this world, even in a fallen condition, what we see here will be far greater in heaven, that it will be far better, that everything we appreciate here, it'll, it'll, the Lord Jesus will say, I see that and I raise you infinity and beyond. Jesus will satisfy all the desires of our hearts because in fact, Jesus has created our hearts, designed our hearts, and he designs us and he designs this world for perfect joy and blessedness. And so we simply need to recognize, as I've said before, that this is a honeymoon where the groom has not revealed the details uh, that are set before us. We don't know where we're going. And that's ultimately what the Christian life is all about. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. He knew it would be glorious, but he did not know precisely all the details of where he was going. And so it is for the bride of Christ who is whisked away by Jesus Christ into a land of delights. And in one sense, it's more joyful. It's more joyful to wait and to let the anticipation build for that great and glorious day. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we desire to inhabit Your house for all eternity. We pray that You would fix our eyes upon the way, the truth, and the life apart from whom no one can come unto You and find acceptance. We know that we shall stand before Your judgment seat and that You have raised up Jesus Christ to judge the world in righteousness and raised Him from the dead to signify that authority. But we do have this great hope that when we stand before you, we shall be clothed in his perfect righteousness 
and we shall hear those words. Our Lord even revealed to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Give us a sense of that joy here today and may it fuel our heavenly citizenship and conversation in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.